going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. It's the willingness to keep pushing through new challenges, not shrink from them back into your comfort zone that separates the successful from the unsuccessful. Love those words because it is very emblematic of how today's show is going to be all about. We are going to talk a little childcare. It has been one of the big question marks surrounding the election campaign. After 4 o'clock, we're going to chat with Anita Turna from the Alberta Association of Child Care Operators. The NDP has this $25 a day daycare plan laid out. They went through a bit of a pilot project, but it left the AACO with a number of questions. And then some of them got answered, but not all of them. So we'll chat with Anita about that. Also, Dr. Rohan Basundath back in. We're going to talk vaping. And the challenges faced uh, with today's youngsters. Also, canola producers getting thrown challenge after challenge lately. Kevin Surface from the Alberta Canola Producers Commission will join us after 5 o'clock to dive into some of the challenges they're facing. Uh, it, not a good time, especially when farmers are trying to figure out what they want to be putting into the ground this spring. Do you want to put in canola with all these questions lingering about China and elsewhere? We'll talk to Kevin about that. But we're going to start things off talking gay-straight alliances. I'll be the first to admit, I'm a little shocked that we're going back and talking about this. Given that Jason Kenney and the UCP wanted to walk out of, and I believe did, walk out of the legislature on this very topic because they thought uh, it's, it's a gotcha moment. So I was a little surprised that they decided to bring this whole thing back up because all of a sudden now you've got yet another reason for the NDP to latch on to, hey, look at what all of your candidates have said about GSAs in the past. I thought they were going to stick to their strengths. I really did. But this in and of itself has a lot of questions, and I'm amongst them who go, all right, if I've got a if I'm a small C conservative. If I'm somebody who claim is uh, and I've made it perfectly clear, I'm fiscally conservative but socially libertarian. Can I back this? Am I under this big tent? The answer quite frankly is no. I I'm going to be as open and transparent with these but I'm not with you on this one. The idea, and again, I know that it's a lot of people are leaving it out for interpretation. But the idea of outing kids will never, ever be okay. And the, the crazy thing about it now is what you're starting to see is teachers are now posting on social media saying, hey, are you going to find me? You're going to fire me if I don't abide by these new rules, if you become uh, the governing party? I haven't heard an answer yet on that front, but I'm curious as to how a government, how the government would deal with that if it were under UCP, uh, if the government was a UCP government. So there'll be a conversation we're going to have in the days and weeks ahead to be certain. On that front, though, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of misinformation about what a GSA actually is. And so we're going to chat with Pam Rocker, the director of Affirming Connections here in Calgary. Uh, she's really at, been at the forefront of this discussion, whether it's uh, not just GSAs, but also working with churches and, and that kind of thing. And so it'll be a really great discussion that we have with Pam Rocker coming up next here on Calgary Today. By definition, Gay Straight Alliance is Gay Straight Alliance. 
Number one, my argument would be a school should be a GSA period and a discussion. It should be an alliance of everybody. Number two, beyond that, is if I were a kid in school right now, I would be one of the first people to stand up and say, I'm, I want to be part of that club. 110%. Why? As a straight white male, I think it is privy upon me to feel as uh, to allow kids to have that opportunity to feel like they're in a safe place. And if I can help be a part of that, that's what I stood for as being uh, a young person and how I stand today. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I think that's been what's lost in all of this is, oh, it's a secret society. It's this club. To shed a little bit more light on this, Pam Rocker joining us now from Affirming Connections. Pam, thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Am I wrong in that assessment? Let's talk about the GSA first and foremost. What is it all about? And what, what is the hope when a, when a student comes forward and says, let's create this? I think, you know, it's different in each school, but I think the core of it is basically about kids having a safe space, like you said. Um, usually they have snacks, they talk about their lives. Um, I think a lot of people who sort of, you know, say how scandalous it is would actually be quite bored if they knew <laughs> what happened. And not that it's not really important, it's just it really is a unique space for a lot of people, and we know still in our society it's so difficult to uh, come out and and you still there's very harsh consequences if so, uh, especially depending on you know the beliefs in your family or in your culture, and so it's just a space where you can be and just be and you know talk about your life, who you might have a crush on. Um, fundraise, you know, plan parties for the school, think about human rights in different parts of the world. Um, you know, it's really by the kids. It's what they, there's no agenda by the teacher. That's really what the kids are interested in talking about. And like you said, about having an, an alliance together in a world that still um, has a lot of violence and animosity towards LGBTQ kids. Why do you think that it is put on, a, a GSA is put on a pedestal more so than say whether it's chess club the football team brass band whatever the case may be i mean there there's this stigma about it that's just doesn't seem to want to go away i agree with you i mean i understand it and at the same time i don't i think a big piece of it is discrimination i think a big piece of it is basically a lot of people saying that they feel uncomfortable with it and that they might want to know if their kid was in it so that they could discourage them from being in it or they could find out what's happening with their kid's identity and try to discourage that. Whereas, you know, to me, it's just as normal as being somebody who loves, you know, loves chess. Um, but a lot of people don't feel that way. And so I think it's sort of a red herring to to make it seem like something, you know, uh devious is going on because then they can say well you know i need to know when really sometimes unfortunately you know parents can be the first bullies in kids lives and i think it it really has shown statistically to save kids lives and i think that that is something that we can all agree on that is sacred and really matters it's one of those things that i i've always come across in in the debates over the last few years about this is and I'm, granted, I'm not a parent yet, and that's been a the number one issue that always comes up when I weigh in is like, oh, you're not a parent, you don't understand. But even beyond that is I feel as though when I get to that point of being a parent, if I'm lucky enough to get to do so, is I'll feel like I've failed as a parent if my kid doesn't feel comfortable enough to come out to me. 
That being right. said, not every kid is like that. And that's what a lot of this is all about. It's circling around the kids who don't have that safe space at home and feel like they've got somewhere to call home at school. Yeah. And I think that's really key. I appreciate you bring up that point because really there's nothing to fear if if your kid doesn't fear you, then um, then you will know what's happening and they will feel free to have that conversation with you. And I know some parents, even, you know, parents who are affirming and they say, you know, they support LGBTQ people and they show that and how they live their lives, you know, even they are, you know, have said, well, I, I wonder, you know, I, I would want to know. But it's really about each individual's journey. I mean, the luxury of being somebody, um, you know, if, if you're somebody who is straight in society is you don't ever have to come out because that's considered the norm. You don't ever have to fear if somebody's going to accept you. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we have to, you know, really listen when kids say this is a really difficult period in our lives. And I mean, I'm gay and I'm 37. And I still <laughs> encounter a lot of really difficult things. And I have to figure out how to navigate those things. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's about having a good relationship with your your kid. And, you know, they will tell you there's not anything, you know, secret about it. If they if they know that you're going to affirm who they are and if they don't know and you're, if you're worried, then tell them what you think about LGBTQ people and rights and show that in the way that you live your life and, and the people who you surround yourself with. And you won't have anything to worry about. There is another element to this, another uh, layer to the onion, and that might be the religious factor because it does go against uh, some beliefs and values in, in homes. And I know you work on that particular aspect of things. And what have you found as you've worked through the different dynamics when it comes to religion? Yeah, I mean, I've worked, I have been involved in mostly Christian churches my whole life, and especially with the LGBTQ community and faith communities as a profession for the last decade. And, you know, sadly, the cause of most discrimination against LGBTQ kids is religiously motivated. And so we just have to recognize that that is the reality right now. And there's a lot of fear because, you know, I know how I grew up, it was you know, in no uncertain terms was it explained to me um, that people who were gay were were bad and were going to go to hell. So that's a very extreme position, but it's one that we have to recognize a lot of people still hold. And so I understand that a lot of folks who are in those positions feel really worried that if they support anything or even seem to support anything um, that would be LGBTQ positive, that... You know, they would worry about the faith or the the eternity or, you know, the relationship with God that their child might have. And to me, that's just, it shows that we need to move into a better understanding of the scriptures, move out of sort of this box that I think a lot of, um, you know, I, I can say as a Christian that a lot of Christians have been put into that we're required to be discriminatory and move into a place of love and say, what does love look like in all of these situations? Because to me, it's actually the most faithful thing to support people who are put into the margins and to say, you know, if we act like the God that we believe in, then what kind of God do we believe in? A God that's expansive and loving or a God that's exacting and judgmental. And we have to decide what that's going to be. You mentioned a word in there, and it's love. And one of the things that comes to mind as I listen to you talk about it is you don't necessarily have to love the sin. You can actually hate the sin, but you can't. You should still love the sinner. You know, I wouldn't, 
even put it that way because I don't see it as being a sin. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it as just a, a way of being, you know, just like I mentioned, if you're straight, you don't have to really worry about it. You never have to come out. And I hope one day that that's going to be the same reality that my sexuality and the people who I love uh, and, you know, that I want to marry my fiance, that that's just as normal as anybody else's because it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's really just about loving people. And I think when we sort of get into, you know, uh, the best description that I heard from uh, Father uh, Richard Rohr, he's a Franciscan priest, and he said, you know, a definition of sin is really immaturity. It's this idea that we think about ourselves before others. And I can't think about anything that's more immature than somebody telling us who they are and us saying that we reject that and that, mm-hmm. that we don't believe it. Right. So it really is faithful um, to me and my work to be affirming. Pam Rocker is our guest from Affirming Connections here in Calgary. And Pam, I wanted to go a little bit more into this idea of of kind of, I don't want to call it minding your own business, but at the same time, we do get in that, into that mindset when this topic comes up of live and let live and love and let love. And yet that seems to be lost in the grand scheme of the, the communicate or the, the conversation anyways, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's really sort of about being afraid of difference, right? I mean, again, I can relate with those feelings. I, I grew up in that world, and, um, you know, I, I think the thing that, that makes me really sad is, like, as a child, I felt like I had to choose between, um, you know, my identity and being gay and my faith. And that is what's you know, a really sad thing to me in these conversations because a lot of kids, their spirituality means so much to them. And yet when they hear these conversations and people talk about religious freedom and that's why they need to, you know, sort of clamp down on GSAs and all this other stuff, I think that sends the message that they can't be um, a person of faith and be gay or transgender or whoever else they are. And I think that we're really, you know, that's a real disservice because all of those things are really important pieces of who we are. And when we try to tell other people what that looks like, we're actually, you know, telling them that they have to fracture pieces of themselves in order to belong. And I don't think that that's a healthy or a faithful thing message to be sending to our kids. How important is it for us to continue to have this conversation, but in a way where I don't want to say that emotion needs to be kept out of it, but at the same time, I know both sides can be very emotionally invested in this and there needs to be some sort of, whether it's compromise or just a respectful discussion so that it doesn't become what it's already becoming just based on social media is an absolute storm of he said this, she said this, and it, it, it kind of devolves into insanity, whereas we kind of need to have a little bit more civility on a topic that is this um, sensitive. You know, that's really tough. <laughs> what you're explaining is an ideal world in mm. some ways, I think. I'm an ideologist. I'm yeah. an ideal guy, right? <laughs> and I think, you know, there there is merit to what you're saying. I think it's really, um, that's really challenging for the people who are the most impacted, mm. right? Because often when people respond to, you know, the news we've heard in the past couple of days, um, about, you know, going back to different rules we've had in education acts, it's, we know, like I know, because I talk to parents and kids all the time, how those things impact their everyday lives in really real ways. And so I think, 
you know, even though we don't want to sort of get dragged into the mud, it's also really key that the the words that we're saying and, and the emotions behind them actually come from statistics. They come from facts. They come from people that we look in the eyes every single day. They come from families who, you know, are visiting their teen in the hospital because they've harmed themselves because of how they feel about who they are. And so civility definitely um, matters, but at the same time, I think it really matters when we think about, you know, who are we putting in harm's way by not speaking out against something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have, I really think this is a bipartisan issue, you know, it's easy to paint either side however we want, but, you know, I can say in my work, like I've met hundreds of people in the last 10 years who struggle with who they are. They feel like they have to choose. They feel like they have to hide. And there's real consequences that they get for saying anything about who they are. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that I'm going to prioritize when I'm having the conversations, because I think at the end of the day, all of us would agree that we have to protect the most vulnerable. And so people that don't have any agency over where they live and where they eat and all of those things are, I think, we should all agree that that's what matters and listen to what they're telling us they need. I agree with you on that front for sure. Pam, I do appreciate the time this afternoon and the insight. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Joe. Bye-bye. Pam Rocker over at Affirming Connections. I have a few other thoughts on this, but I'm running out of time, unfortunately. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. A lot of questions about policy and things happening in the world of provincial politics as we are into week number two of the election campaign officially because we're it dropped a week ago today. And one of the proposals being brought forward, $25 a day daycare. And it was a pilot program through uh, the private uh, providers earlier and yesterday the province or the NDP government saying hey we're going to expand on that but it's left a few people wondering what's we, we've got some clarification that we need the Alberta Association of Child Care Operators is that organization that had a few questions before yesterday's announcement have a little bit of clarity now and joining us now to talk more about that is Anita Turna. Anita thanks so much for the time today. Yeah thank you for having me. What do you think is the number one question on not only parents' minds, but also on the provider's side of things when it comes to this election campaign and some of the things that are being talked about uh, from that, from your standpoint? Um, I think from a parent's perspective, I think the number one question is probably, uh, am I going to be able to get $25 a day? Um, am I going to be able to get access to an affordable child care plan that works for me? Um, and then from the provider side, uh, I can't speak for obviously the nonprofits. I, I represent the private licensed child care centers. Um, on their side, they're wondering kind of the same thing. Am I going to get access to $25 a day or any other affordable child care plan? Are there going to be supports in place for the families and the community that I service? At the end of the day, operators really want to advocate for their families that are registered in their programs. And it's not just about, um, creating these spaces but ensuring that there's equitable access to them and that's become part of the crux of a lot of the questions that you've had over the last couple of days is yeah you can have these ideas but uh, for 25 dollar a day uh, daycare but at the same time you're limiting it to a certain group of providers and so it puts the other uh, providers that are not under the program at a massive disadvantage yeah so i mean 
We have, since the pilot project was announced, um, our group has been advocating for private operators and just asking those questions about what our role is going to be within this this program because we were actually specifically excluded from the pilot. Um, And uh, so with this expansion announcement, we are included, but there's still a caveat there where the transition is going to be, I believe, four to five years. And from the statements that were made, it's going first to the nonprofit centers and the approved family day homes, and then to the private licensed child care centers. Um, and we think that that it doesn't really make sense. And it can put a lot of operators at a disadvantage if they're seeing their neighboring centers get it access to it before them. Um, we've spoken to operators where even just the test sites, the ELCC pilot program sites have opened next to them and they have reported that they are losing children and staff at a very high rate and are wondering how long they can keep their doors open for. So uh, we would probably want to see more of a transition based on need rather than just your your funding model. And the massive question at the end of the day becomes about competitiveness, right? I mean, parents are going to be looking for the best deal imaginable, and if they can find one at a $25 a day daycare, they're going to go to that before they go elsewhere. Absolutely. Cost is a huge issue for parents. That's absolutely accurate. Um, but at the end of the day, we want parents going to centers, not just because it's in their price range. We want them to be able to access centers that work for their families, whether that's because they like the providers there, they had, you know, uh, good referrals in the community. It's close to them. It services schools that they want their children to attend in the future. There are so many other factors that also go into the decision as to whether or not a parent wants to attend a center. Uh, cost is a huge part of it, but we want parents to have that freedom and that flexibility. So they shouldn't feel like, oh, well, I have to go here because it's affordable. Um, because it may not work for them. It may be across across town. That could be the first one that they can get into. But is it really fair that they have to drive 20 minutes to get access to it? So those are the kind of things that I think we could potentially see as parents are vying for these spots as they become available. We talk about cost from a parent perspective, but there's also a cost that's incurred by daycare providers. And I'm curious as to when it comes to cost and the, the burden of having to deal with uh, the $25 a day daycare. And, and by burden, I mean, there there's costs that got to be recouped and that kind of thing. Are, is there any concern on that front in terms of being able to get the money from the right resources? Um, I think when it comes to every, every child care center has their own operating cost. It's very individual depending on um, their overhead, right? Things like their space, their renting, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. So there are various costs associated with it. I think the the question if they if the government does get elected or sorry reelected and there is an expansion of this program there will have to be discussions about what kind of funding model is going to be in place for the privates versus the nonprofits versus the day homes who all have different um funding models and obligations. So uh, there's going to be a lot of questions coming up, that's for sure. Um, And so we're just going to play it by ear and as it comes. Is there a concern on the flip side that if this $25 a day program does go topsy-turvy with a different government in place, are there any concerns on that front? Or is there something to be said for keeping the $25 a day daycare program alive and growing? I think that there always needs to be a discussion about affordable childcare options for families. Uh, the funding model that we currently have outside of $25 a day uh, is based is income tested. And so if you qualify, you get certain amount of subsidies and you can apply that to any childcare center that you would like to attend. Um, those are probably not sufficient given our economy. They haven't increased even with inflation. So there, there does 
if we don't continue with $25 a day, there has to be a discussion about what is going to be put in place instead of it. Um, I think that there is a there is a really good basis for having an affordable child care plan in effect in a province. It does contribute greatly to uh, women re-entering the workforce and, and contributing to the economy and things like that. So uh, it, it's not a situation... We cannot have a situation where they just come in and they're like, okay, well, we're not going to do this anymore. You have to have something in place to make afford- a child care affordable. How important is it going to be over the next couple of weeks for Albertans to get an idea as to what all the parties are promising when it comes to daycare so that everybody's got a sense of what's to come once April 16th rolls around? I think it's really important for parents to have the questions that they want answered ready when, you know, these parties are coming knocking on their door or to be able to go to their websites and look at their platforms and ask those questions. Um, We need to look at all of the funding models that are being presented and see what are going to be the implications uh, for me if this government gets reelected or if if a new government comes in. Um, The other thing that some parents have mentioned that they're concerned about uh, are that over the age of five, under the NDP's plan, um, over the age of five hasn't been included. Um, another party has presented a child care plan, and that's the Alberta Party. They released their plan last week, and it's kind of similar to the NDP's plan in that there are supports in place, um, like capping fees at a certain amount, but it is income tested, and the higher your income is, the less supports you'd get. And after 110,000 family household income, you'd get nothing, I believe. Um, and then But in the same vein, it applies to children up to the age of 12. So, you know, that's something that maybe would be more attractive to some families if they have out-of-school care children. Uh, So those are other things that questions, those are questions families may want answered as well. Anita, stay on the line there. We're going to we're going to continue this discussion in a second. Anita is with the Alberta Association of Child Care Operators here in the province as we talk about another big topic of discussion amongst uh, those who are looking to become informed during this election campaign. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. been a rough couple of weeks for canola producers here in our country as China's blocking imports of canola seed from now a second major exporter here in our country. China's General Administration of Customs says on its website, officials have detected several hazardous organisms in shipments of canola from Viterra. The Chinese uh, government recently gave the same reason for blocking canola shipped by Richardson International Limited. Here's what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had to say when he was asked about this latest development in the dispute while he was in Winnipeg today. We have heard very clearly that uh, there is a significant interest in sending a high-level delegation to China to talk about the uh, extraordinary work that we do in terms of oversight, inspection, and the science around uh, ensuring uh, the safety of and the the quality of uh, everything Canada exports. The Canola Council of Canada has also reported the Chinese companies have stopped buying canola seed from Canadian producers as well. A tough go of things, and so we wanted to bring into the program from the Alberta Canola Producers Commission, Vice Chair Kevin Surface. Kevin, thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, nice to be here. Give us a little bit of an idea as to what the last few weeks in particular have been like for our canola producers here in the province. Is it a feeling of almost looking over your shoulder and going, what's next? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely been uh, a turbulent uh, couple of weeks, and it, it, it yeah, it, it it just continually seems to get worse. You know, we started with the 
with the, the Richardson's ordeal, uh, then, you know, late last week it turned into, uh, you know, China stopped buying completely. Uh, now, um, you know, we've gone to, um, Viterra has been sort of completely blocked out. Um, so it's, uh, no, it, it, ha- it hasn't been a lot of fun. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of questions circling around, a lot of unknowns, so to speak, so. At the crux of it, is it an actual beef with the canola industry, or do you get the feeling that this is just something in the house of cards of politics? You know, at this point, um, all that that we know and all that we've been told is that this is a quality issue um, that the Chinese have, um, you know, um, with with the product that we're sending. So... um, Unless until somebody tells us otherwise, that is the issue uh, that uh, I guess needs to be dealt with. So, from that standpoint, then is what do you tell your producers? How do you make sure that you're getting to the the root of the problem if that is in fact the case? Uh, well, I mean, we, uh, you know, I, I know that um, we've got uh, really, really good people on the Canola Council. Uh, working on this i think there's government working on this um you know uh, I, there's no doubt in my mind that uh you know we have and and are um shipping quality product um exporting to to numerous customers uh around the world so um you know it's just a matter of of really you know honing in on the science of what's going on and uh what the the issue is and, and you know really trying to get the the information from China and the Canadian officials and and and, and letting the science work this this issue out give us a little bit of an idea as to how big of a consumer China is for Canadian canola and Alberta canola well we export 40% of of our the seed that that gets exported goes to China so um it's actually uh 2018 uh, canola seed exports to China were worth 2.7 billion dollars yeah, and so that's a, a major kick in the pants for for the producers here is because the longer you wait for things to tie up is the longer you're going to be hit, taking a hit in the pocketbook and likely the price is going to drop in the process as well. So even that the stuff that you are trying to offload uh, isn't going to be going for the top dollar that you were hoping for in the first place. When you lose 40% of that market, I mean, it's, it's simple supply demand. Um, you know, if uh, the the supply outweighs that demand the price is is going to drop it it, you know it it very well could eventually get uh get worked through um by going to other markets or you know maybe we crush some more domestically but uh you know it's it's a it's a buyer's market so to speak right now it absolutely is kevin uh hang on the line for a second we're going to continue this discussion in just a couple of minutes here kevin surface from the alberta canola producers commission the vice chair there as we talk about this ongoing uh, issues surrounding canola and, and just wanted to give you a little bit more uh, context on the political side of things before we go to break here. The federal Conservatives calling for an emergency meeting of the Commons Agriculture Committee to talk about this uh, canola seed debacle that is happening on the federal stage. And opposition leader Andrew Scheer says it's clear the decision is in retaliation for Canada's arrest of a Huawei executive at the request of U.S. authorities. When Canada makes decisions for both what we import and what we export, we make our decisions based on science. Clearly, when you're dealing with a country like China, uh, we, we have to ensure that, uh, that other aspects aren't coming into play. 
So again, today, China saying we're not going to be taking any more shipments from Viterra. And that uh, follows the decision to block canola shipped by Richardson as well. Uh, yet another hit on uh, what has been a, a tough couple of years because of drought and that, and that kind of thing. Even continuing this conversation on canola and the blocking by China of two of our major exporters being Viterra and Richardson. Kevin Surface from the Alberta Canola Producers Commission joining us on the program and uh, Kevin, you you heard the comments from Andrew Shear. We've also heard from Justin Trudeau on this issue, and I am curious from uh, the ACPC standpoint: is what is your message to uh, legislators, to those who might be meeting with the Chinese as we try to uh, get those borders back open again? No, I mean, you know, I guess the message is, um, you know, you know, do whatever it takes necessary to to, to try and get to the to the bottom of this. Um, you know, exact exactly what everybody's doing. I I I'm not privy to that information, but you know, uh, you know, intensify whatever whatever's going on. Um, you know, and as a producer, we're you know, I'm always in favor of expanded markets. You know, uh, developed markets. So we've got markets that are that are mature markets. There's there's markets that are immature that that we're working on, and you know, it's a it's sort of a world economy here and there are places that this stuff can go um but it's just developing those markets and 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 showing uh the world uh the the great value that canola is it's a made in canada product you know it's this is where canada is where canola was invented so to speak so Mm -hmm. um you know we've got we've got something pretty special here um you know, it's sort of like the golden child of the uh, of you know Western Canadian prairies. Um, you know, that's that's having a bit of a rough go here right now. Absolutely. So. And and on that note, then, what's your message been to producers in this province? I, everybody's risk tolerance levels are different, so you know, it it, it it's not a, a, a the same message to everybody. You know, everybody's going to be a little bit different. You know, I guess in the short term, just sort of. Let's wait and see what happens. Um, you know, if this can be resolved in the next few weeks, um, you know, it'll be sort of minimal damage. I, I don't know if that's going to happen um, in the in the next few weeks. Um, you know, and you know, guys are going to have to make some decisions. Do we do we change some crop plans here? You know, seeding's coming up in 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 four weeks. It's it's a it's not that easy to uh, to to change things in that short of a period of time, but it, it can be done, um, you know, and, you know, different people, you know, if they haven't sold all their crop, the, the new crops going in the ground, may, you know, farmers need cash to buy inputs. Uh, it's, uh, it's a case-by-case sort of thing, um, and, and everybody's going to be a little bit different. Absolutely. Kevin Surface, the vice chair of the Canadian Canola Produ- or Alberta Canola Producers Commission, joining us on the program. Thanks so much for that input there, Kevin. Uh, it's one of those things, I guess, as a farmer, you're bound, you're, you're always at the mercy of not only the weather, but the markets as well. And certainly the, the news over the last couple of days uh, has not been overly welcoming to uh, our canola producers. So again, hopefully we can figure something out here, whether it's uh, and and soon, because I think a lot of farmers are sitting there going, okay, am I planting canola this year? Or again, they've probably bought all their seeds. So it's a matter now of, can you go back and I guess you can't trade it. You hope that maybe next year will be better.
If you want to get up early in the morning and head to Airdrie or if you're in Airdrie already and want to meet up with a Mountie, they have this thing now called Mochas with Mounties. And joining us now to talk more about that is Sergeant Brent Kybel. Uh, Sergeant, thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Talk a little bit about this idea of Mochas with Mounties and where it all started from. Sure, yeah, I'd, I'm glad to hear. It's um, it's our second Mochas with Mounties. Uh, we held one earlier in February. Um, it's basically a chance for the community to to meet with us Mounties here in Airdrie and, and surrounding area. Um, it's a chance for them to come forward to us, not only just to, to meet us in person, but to ask questions, voice any concerns uh, in an open forum type of setting. This one, and this is going to be held tomorrow, which is uh, March 27th, uh, from 10 to noon. It'll be held at the Tim Hortons, uh, located at number one Midtown Boulevard in Airdrie here. Talk a little bit about what the reaction was and some of the interactions that you guys had during the first one. I'll tell you, it, we were not sure how it was going to go ahead on this one because um, it was it was a brand new thing for us here in Airdrie. Uh, we just went for it, and actually the, the public at first um, they were very, very well receptive to us. Uh, it took a little while for them to, to warm up, to come in to talk to us, and we had to you know approach some of the some of the customers there, and they were wondering what we were doing at first. But uh, once they got to know why we were there and were there basically, to to answer any questions or any concerns they may have with uh, with Airdrie and, and what they see, how we can help them, uh, what sort of sections we have within the RCMP. These um, we're we're actually hosting different uh, different units uh, at the, within the RCMP at these Mocos for Mounties. And tomorrow we're actually going to be uh, the domestic violence unit people as well as the mental health unit uh, and liaison people are going to be there as well as myself. Uh, Inspector Kim Baslowski is, is going to make a special appearance for us. Uh, maybe a couple other, uh, couple other officers. So there'll be uh, at least six or seven of us there, willing and able to participate and talk to whoever want to talk to us. When I was talking to your commander, uh, the new Alberta commander last week, he said one of the things that he wanted to get first and foremost in everybody's mind, especially his own officers, was the idea of getting out there and being not necessarily less about enforcement, but certainly about being out in the community and being a part of that community. And, and this sounds like something that is uh, uh, right along that trail. Absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, as my role as, as the NCO of the Community Liaison Unit, which is a newly formed unit here within Airdrie, we have several sections underneath, uh, under this umbrella, and our main focus is to get out in the community and, and basically talk to the community, see what they want, and, and actually make them feel comfortable with approaching the police and, and voicing their concerns and hopefully some praise as well. Um, we uh, are definitely, our, our one of our goals is to go out in the public. I mean, uh, without the public, a lot of times we would not be able to do our jobs. So we really appreciate any and all information we get from them. Was there any key uh, theme or anything like that that came out of that first one? You know what? The first one, basically, the, at first, like I said, it kind of went started off a little slow, people not knowing what our goal was there and, and if we had any basically any any ulterior motives, if you want to say it to that. Um, but in the end, I mean, they were very happy. We were very happy to hear that a lot of them actually do uh, feel Airdrie is very safe. Um, you know, we have the we have the people coming up to us basically expressing uh, concerns, the normal things, the driving, um, how to report a crime, what happens if sort of situations. So hopefully we got a lot of that answer for the for the folks that showed up and we're willing to uh, 
take as much time tomorrow with them to answer the same questions. I suppose a lot of it too, going back to the communi- uh, community connections aspect of it, and, and you bring up a great example with this one coming up tomorrow being uh, sort of the focus surrounding domestic violence is being able to create that connection so that down the road, if they need someone, especially domestic violence, we all know uh, it's very difficult for a victim to come forward. And if you've got that connection there, suddenly it's not as daunting maybe for someone to come forward. Absolutely. We want to, we want to make sure that people know that we are there for them. And uh, obviously privacy is, is one of our paramount concerns here. And we want people to feel comfortable with coming to us with any situations uh, or concerns they do have. And, and uh, this is just one step we're trying to take to uh, liaise and interact with the, with the community and make them feel safe and, and, and okay with coming to talk to us about these things. In the end, uh, you know, we, we want to get give them the answers and, and that they are coming to ask us for and hopefully um, we give that to them. And on the flip side, this is a great opportunity for officers to kind of mix and mingle and maybe go out of their comfort zone a little bit, maybe have a little bit of fun, be known to be laughing on the job, maybe, that kind of thing. It's got to be a little bit of a fun time too. Yeah, well, you know what? That's, uh, that is definitely part of our job and, and it should be. I mean, we, we have to be able to have fun and the public needs to know that we are people that do live in the community. Uh, we're neighbors, we're friends, we're coaches, uh, we're various various other people in the community. So we want to make sure that they understand that, yeah, you know what, we are human beings and we do we are doing a job. Unfortunately, sometimes part of our job is, is not to deal with very pleasant things. But this is one thing that a lot of us, and in fact, I will go out on the limb and say all of us do enjoy very much to do because it is a very positive experience and we, uh, we enjoy the public coming to us and basically enjoying our company as well as us enjoying theirs. Looking forward to it for sure, I'm sure. Uh, Sergeant, thank you again for the time. Looking forward to uh, tomorrow between 10 and noon. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And that'll be happening at the Timmy's in Midtown in Airdrie. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary Today.